Hello, this is Jeff Vanderstelt, Executive Director of Saturate and the host of the Saturate podcast. Saturate exists to serve and equip leaders to start and strengthen unified gospel city movements that lead to gospel saturation. To the end that every man, woman, and child has repeated opportunities to meet Jesus through his church on mission everywhere, every day. Now, we believe this is going to require, as Jesus prayed in John 17, that the church is unified in a region and collaborating around five key initiatives, citywide prayer, leader health, disciple-making strategies, serving the city together, and starting new churches and new kingdom initiatives. You know, we've been talking about this for about a year now on the podcast, and we've intentionally broken up uh, sections of time and devoted more energy to each one of these five initiatives. If you've been paying attention, we we try to spend three to five podcasts in a row on one particular initiative and then move on to the next. And so we've gone through all the key initiatives this last year, and I thought it would be good just to pause and talk a little bit more about this vision for gospel saturation, where we uh, derive it from biblically and why we've landed on these five key initiatives that we believe are imperative for God's people in a particular place to unite around and collaborate toward. So I want to just walk through this vision for gospel saturation that we're talking about. The origination of it for us in terms of when I often go to a place and cast a vision for this idea of gospel saturation is in Habakkuk 2.14. There we read, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a saturation point. I live here uh, in the greater Puget Sound. If you walk out toward water, which is everywhere here, and you were to say to somebody, you know, there, there's the Puget Sound, uh, the whole, I, that, that all that uh, area of water is, is, uh, is saturated or filled with sea. There's this idea of water and sea in it. And uh, nobody would look at it and go like, well, that's the Puget Sound and it is the sea. They wouldn't separate the two as though they're different. They would say, no, 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 that is the part of the sea we call it the Puget Sound. And what the prophet is saying here is he's saying there's a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's this idea that there's an immersion. You don't separate water and see it is the same thing. And the prophet is speaking of a day when everywhere you go and what wherever you, whatever you run into, whoever you meet, you'll be confronted, you'll be surrounded by, you'll be immersed in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now, this word glory, I think, uh, oftentimes can be misunderstood. In fact, I misunderstood. I think oftentimes we'll even hear people say things like, oh, we want to glorify the Lord, and, and we do, but let's make sure we understand what that means. I think some people think it means we can make him look better. We can make God look more glorious, more uh, amazing, more you know brilliant in all of his splendor, but that's not what it means. This idea of glory one way to translate it is a weight uh, or the true nature of something. So if you want to think about it in terms of weight, if I were to get on a scale and you were to look at the number on the scale, you would say that's that's the true weight of Jeff as measured by the scale. And you would say that's the revelation of 
how much you weigh. That's in a sense, and it certainly isn't glorious, just to be clear, but that would be my glory in terms of weight. Uh, you would now see it. It would be revealed to you. And so this idea of glory is the revelation of something or the the illumination of something. It's when we finally see what something really is or hear what something really is or understand what something really is. And so in the case of the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord is the invisible God being made visible, the invisible God being made known, the true nature of this God that we don't see being understood uh, by what he's made. So we see the glory of the Lord in all of his creation, but we also hear of the glory of the Lord when we tell the truth about what he's like. And when our lives display what God's like, we also are displaying the glory of the Lord through our lives. And so the prophet is saying there'll be a day when the true nature of what God is like will be fully understood, fully seen everywhere you go. That That's the picture. And I often, when, I, when I'm teaching about this idea of prophecy, when you think about the Old Testament prophets in particular, uh, what I'll often say is when a prophet says something that God is going to do, it's certain that God will do it. We don't know when, but we know he will. And our role in response to the prophetic word is to live into that reality, to believe God will bring it about and to actively walk toward that reality, live into it, believe it's part of what will happen and is actually on the way of happening. So it's a way of saying, this is what's going to happen, but God doesn't do it apart from his creation. He doesn't do it apart from his people. And so these kinds of words are meant to not just inform us so that we might have hope about the future, but they're meant to direct us in how to live, that we would be a part of that means by which God would display the true nature of what he's like, that he would show his glory through his people to the world. Now, we know Israel failed at that. We fail at that. And yet Jesus comes in the fullness of time to begin the fulfillment of this prophetic word. We know that in Colossians 1.15, we hear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all of creation. Jesus at one point says to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is the full display of the glory of God. He is the God-man who brings the true nature of what God's like into physical form so that like John says, we, we, if you've seen him or touched him or heard from him, you've actually heard from God himself. You've seen what God is actually like in a physical form. Jesus is the display of the glory of God in man. And so Jesus comes to do that, to bring that about, but it doesn't end there. We read in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, that God put all things under his feet, under Jesus's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. By the way, that's the word uh, in Greek, soma, which is where the family of churches that I, I'm a part of called soma derives our name. It's from this particular text. So he says, he's head over all things to the church, which is his body. And listen to this, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the picture here now is Jesus is the full expression of the true nature of God. He is the glory of God in physical form. And now he is described as the head of his church. He's head over all things 
to the church, which is his body, which he fills through which he fills all in all. And here's the idea. Now we who have come to him, like First Peter describes, the cornerstone, uh, we like living stones are being built as we come to Jesus into this spiritual house. Now, Peter talks about in a way it says that this kind of spiritual house is a living, breathing, dynamic reality that's everywhere uh, God's people are. So it's not in a building. It's not limited to an event or a program. It's the it's the means by which Jesus, through his people in everyday life, is building out a spiritual house so that, as Peter describes later in chapter 2, we would live the kind of lives amongst people who don't believe that they would glorify God. <laughs> they would either now or later when he returns that they would glorify him. They would actually say, we saw what you are like. We saw the nature of who you are and what you do through your people, the church. And that's what Paul is saying here in Ephesus. He's saying the church is the very body of Jesus, who is the glory of God on display, is now through his body, the church, expressing the fullness of God. That's the true nature of what he's like by filling all in all. In other words, the intent that God has always had is that through Jesus and his body, the church, every place that we live, work, learn, and play would be filled with the the fullness of God, the true nature of what he's like. The glory of God would be seen and heard through his people, the church. And this is a very important thing. I want to pause and just make sure we identify how key this is. This is not only an event that we we express the true nature of God through singing and preaching and confession of sin and, and taking of the sacraments and the observance through baptism and all these other things that we do as the people of God. This is the people of God in every place, every day, filling every place with the fullness of him who is the true nature of God, the true glory of God being seen through Jesus and his church everywhere, every day. I often will sit down with people and process through their life. I remember doing this with a guy who was a manager at Microsoft, and I brought him through these passages, and I I reminded him of this next passage, which I think is really, really important, because it's not just a corporate thing that God is doing this through, though he is when we gather together as his people, there is a remarkable display of what God is like through his church gathered. But Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Referring to individuals, not just the church, it's also referring to people. He says, and this is the hope of glory. In other words, the hope that God has is that through every single person that is a follower of Jesus, who's been given new life by the Spirit and now is a temple of the living God, the hope of glory is Christ in you by his Spirit, making known the glory of this mystery, which is the gospel and the good news of God in all that he is and has done uh, to the world. And so I, I was sitting down with this particular manager from Microsoft, and I said, uh, the beauty is not just that he wants to do this through the, the gathering of God's people, but also the scattering of his everyday priest. And in particular, I said to this friend of mine at Microsoft, through your leadership, through how you manage employees and direct the team and, and uh, operate in such a way as a leader 
that you are displaying what Jesus is like were he to be a manager in a particular part of Microsoft. And we even broke down his week just to kind of kind of talk through it very practically. I said, you know, look, let's look at your calendar, uh, your schedule, and just tell me about each day and what you're going to do and the meetings you're going to have and the people that you're going to spend time with and the activities you're going to engage in. And we just walked through each day and said, what would it look like if on, on Monday in this meeting, you were to fully embrace this idea that you are the means by which God will make his very nature known to those employees through how you lead the meeting. And let's look at that one-on-one you're going to have. And how would you engage that differently, knowing that you are meant to lead people to the true nature of what God is like through how you handle that particular interaction? I helped him see that his whole week was meant to be a week-long worship service, that not only was he doing it for the glory of Jesus, that he was doing his work, not unto men, but unto, unto God for his sake, but also that the way in which he did it could also lead people one day to not only see what, what God's actually like, see what Jesus is actually like, but also give him praise, actually glorify him with their words and their lives. And that's what Peter's talking about in First Peter 2. And as we walked through his whole week, it was profound. I remember him even pausing and saying, like, I had no idea. I've never thought about my life and my work to this degree. I've never, it's never had this level of significance. And he even went on to, to say, this is a, a level of sanctification, setting apart of my work that I've never engaged in. And I, I just want to encourage you, if you're listening, and you're a follower of Jesus, this is what it means to be his elect. This idea of election isn't who's in and who's out, but it's what you're elect for, what God has chosen you for. You are chosen. It says this, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other places, in Ephesians um, and other parts of Colossians, but all throughout the scriptures, we hear this language of God choosing you for a purpose, or in Ephesians 2, where he saved you for good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. And those good works are meant to be an offering of your life for the sake of the glory of God, that your life would be an act of worship that would lead others into worship. And so that's the this big idea of what God intends to do through his people everywhere and every day. And that's what we refer to as gospel saturation. What do we mean by that? We mean that there's a day when every man, woman, and child will have the opportunity to see and experience the true nature of what God is like and what he's done in the good news of Jesus coming, living, dying, being buried, risen again, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, returning one day to make all things new, that we would live our lives in such a way that that reality of the good news of the gospel would be not just declared through our lives, but displayed through our lives. See, the hope would be that people don't have to go to an event on a Saturday or a Sunday or a gathering or a program to somehow meet Jesus. All they would need is to be near a follower of Jesus who understands their calling and is living in this way for Jesus's fame and glory. So that's the idea that we're after. We want to see every follower of Jesus understand their calling, 
be empowered by the Spirit, equipped by those around them to live this out where we live, work, learn, and play. And then Jesus himself, in praying to the Father, uh, says something that's really profound in his prayer that has significant implications for what I just said. He says, Father, I'm not just praying for those that I have right now, but for everyone who will believe. In John 17, 21 through 23, he goes on to say this, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I want you to hear this. This is really important. This next verse, the glory, there's that word again, that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, so that the world will know that you sent me. Now, what's going on here? There's that word glory again. And remember, that word glory is the, the true weight or true nature of what God's actually like. It's when we see, when we know, when we understand what God is fully like in Christ, we've experienced that glory. And that's why Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, which is he, he received a body in which he could then display the true nature of what God's like through his life. He says, that glory that you give me, now I've given it to them. Well, we know that the Spirit was the means by which this true nature of what God is like, Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is the Spirit of Christ in us, is the means by which we can express the glory or the true nature of what God is like. And Jesus is saying it, I've given it to them, this glory. Now, not only did he give the glory in terms of uh, displaying in his own body the nature of God and declaring with his words what God is like, but he also gave them his spirit so that they would have the very uh, real presence of God in them so that through them, like Paul says to the church in Colossae, the hope, Christ in you, the hope of, of glory, that through them, they might also show and tell the truth of what God is actually like. And then he says this key phrase, that they may be one, even as we are one. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying the true nature, the true glory of what I am like, what you, Father, are like, is oneness. The Father, I and am you, and you are in me, and we are one. And that is the true nature of who we are. One God, three persons as part of our confession, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And now Jesus is saying, I've now given them this true revelation of who you are and the means by your spirit to make that known to the world. And so I pray that they would be a display in their oneness of what you, Father, and I, and the Spirit are in our very nature, one. This is very profound because what Jesus is saying is it's not enough just to understand what he's like and to proclaim it and to do our best to love people and serve people in the ways that Jesus did, but it also requires that we as his body, the church, are one, that we're reconciled to one another, that we are in operating in unity to display the true nature of what God is like to the world. In other words, if we were to not be operating in unity, if we are to be unreconciled to our brothers and sisters, we are to operate in a divisive way, in a way that we aren't seeing ourselves as one church in 
the city together, that there aren't a whole bunch of individual churches that have their own separate identity, but rather there's one church, in my case, in the greater Puget Sound. Yes, they gather in different buildings. They might even put different names on them, similar to the tribes of, of Israel had different names, but there's still one Israel, and now there's one church, and we are all part of that. To live in any way contrary to oneness and unity is to tell a lie about what God is like. It's to actually fall short of the glory of God, which Paul tells us in Romans is actually sin. To sin is to fall short of the glory of God. It's to fail to display or declare what God is truly like in any way in which we fail to display or declare it in our lives. We are sinning. In other words, we are falling short of displaying the true nature of what God is like. And that's what sin fundamentally is. And it's interesting because what we hear in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 is God says that if you eat of this tree, referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he tells Adam, you will surely die. And in Romans, Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, what's going on here? And I think this is important to put it all together. Originally, God said if we sin, in other words, if we fall short of the glory of God, if we, do, if we fail to display what he's truly like in our words, our thoughts, or our emotions, or actions, then we have sinned. And this idea of sin is to, in some way or another, not be the image bearers God intended us to be, displaying what he's actually like in our relational engagement with other people and with God and with creation itself. And God said that that if we do that, in the day that, that Adam and Eve would eat of that tree, they would surely die. Well, what does death mean? And it's, it, this is a very important thing, I think, to, to grab a hold of. In Hebrews, the word, in the Hebrew language, the word death means separate or separation or separate. And so the idea that God is saying is, if you do this, if you rebel against me, or in Paul's words, if you fall short, if you sin and fall short of the glory of God, then you will experience the consequence. The wage of sin is death. Well, what is that? Separation. You'll experience separation internally. And we've talked about this before on our podcast, that there's a brokenness inside of us, that we need to be integrated. We need to get our hearts back. We need to become whole and one which is part of what we're talking about when we talk about healthy leaders. But also, we experience that now not just internally, but within our relationship with God. We experience separation from God. And that separation also finds its way in our relationships, that we are no longer one with ourselves, no longer one with God, and no longer one with one another. We're, we're divided. We're, we're broken in how we relate to one another. And it even works itself out in how we relate to creation that we handle the world around us in very broken ways. And that's not hard for us to see as we look around the world and the damage we've done to it. And then lastly, there is the sense of a, of a physical death, that we are, our very spirit will be separated from our body, that we will leave our body, there'll be a separation there. And that's what we tend to think of when we think of death. And then there's an ultimate eternal death, and that is, that those who reject God and his means by which we could come to know him through Jesus and come into a relationship with him through Jesus will be eternally separated from the very presence of God. And so that's this idea of death. And let's take that all back to this passage in John 17. Jesus says, I've given them the, the glory you gave me, 
the true nature of what you and I are like, that they may be one even as we are one. In other words, he's saying, I've given them the nature of what we are like, which is our oneness, so that they would live out the nature of what we are like in their oneness. So to not be one, to not be united, to not see ourselves as part of one church is to say fundamentally that God is not one, that God is not united, that God is a divided being, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are not one. And therefore, this has huge implications because if that's the case, then we have no confidence that the Father sent the Son and the Son was obeying the Father on his mission. So how can we trust anything that Jesus is saying if he's not actually one with the Father in everything? Now, we know he is, but the world is seeing something very different if what they do is watch our lives that are divided, watch our relationships that are broken, see us as churches, act as though we are not one, we are fundamentally telling the world a lie about God. And this has huge theological implications because if the truth of what God is like is not being displayed in our very lives, we are lying about what God's nature is. We need to repent of any way in which we have given way to that kind of deception and delusion. And not only does it have theological implications, but it has significant missiological implications. Jesus is saying it is by their oneness in the world that the world will know that the Father sent the Son. It is not only the means by which we display the true nature of what God is like, but it's also the way in which the message of reconciliation, the true nature of the gospel, is being declared through our active unity together. And then I would add one more thing, a third one. There's a pragmatic implication here. The vision of gospel saturation in your city or region or context could never be accomplished by your church alone. It is going to require the entire body of Christ living as one on mission together in a place for this to take place. In fact, I would pause and say, if the vision of your church or the vision of your life could be accomplished by your individual church or your individual life, then your vision is far too small. Because the vision that God has for his church and the vision God has for each one of our lives will require a unity that looks like God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And it will require a collaboration that each of us are engaged in so that every member of the body of Christ is fully equipped and mobilized for the work of ministry in the way God set them apart to do in the beginning. So the imperative of this command, this prayer that Jesus prays, is absolutely integral to the entire mission of the church. Now, I want to now go into these five key elements for gospel saturation that we intro our podcast with every single time we start it. We get these from Acts chapter 13 and 14. So I want to read some of that with you. If you want to open your Bibles, you can, or if you want to look at it later, I'm not going to read all of chapter 13 and 14. I'm going to highlight some passages, but it certainly would be a really good set of, of Scripture for you to read the, the totality of, because it is what some people refer to as the Pauline cycle. And Luke, who's a doctor and very, very meticulous in his records, takes time to record what God did, what Jesus did through his church, by his Spirit, in establishing the church 
so that it would actually accomplish the mission he set it forth to do. And Luke is very detailed about it because I think there are things that he wants us to get, not just as a, a description, though some of it is that, but to also understand some of the prescriptive ways in which God would want his people to continue engaging in the mission of Jesus until he returns. So Acts 13, 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The first thing we see here as a key element for gospel saturation is prayer. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. It was in that place of worshiping God and fasting and praying that the Spirit speaks to them. You see, the, the movement of God throughout this narrative in Acts is that Jesus instructs his people to wait for power on high in Acts 1.8. And he says, when you receive it, you'll, you'll be my witnesses. And they keep following this pattern of praying and waiting on the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit does something, empowers or speaks or directs or leads. And so anything that we see that's going to take place, that's going to look anything like a gospel saturation movement has got to be soaked in, baked in, immersed in a prayerful dependency. We, we, we are not trying to determine what to do on our own, but we are waiting on the Lord. We're attentive to the Spirit while we're praying and fasting, trusting that the Spirit will, like he did in this, this particular context in Antioch, tell us what to do, lead us in the way we're to go, empower us to do it. And so we, we've got to have a collaborative movement of prayer. If you're thinking about your context, I think a question to ask would be, are we not just in our own church, but across the churches, across the spectrum of denominations or expressions of the church in your context, are we praying together? Are we waiting on the Lord together? Are we fully engaging in a posture of dependency on the Spirit to tell us what to do, to lead us where to go, and to give us the ability and power to do it. This is where the whole thing starts with Paul and Barnabas. Continues in verse 21 of 14. So Acts 14, 21. And I want to pause here because previous to all this, the Paul and Barnabas have been out preaching the gospel. They've been they've been serving people and their real needs. They've been casting out demons. They've been healing the sick. I mean, they've been doing the work that Jesus did in front of his disciples. But now he gets beat up. Some of you might remember it gets people don't like what he's saying. They beat him up. They throw him outside the city. He's left for dead. He gets up again <laughs> and continues. And you just see this this unbelievable empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the perseverance that enables Paul to not give up, even in the worst of situations. And in chapter 14, 21, it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And I just want to pause there and make sure we don't miss it. It says, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, so the second thing we see in this gospel saturation movement, and, and some of you might wonder, well, why are you referring to Paul? Well, because we know from his story that he's able to say, 
in a particular place. I've been here. I've done the work. Everybody has heard. Everyone has had the opportunity to meet Jesus. I can move on to the next place. And I don't know that we could say that of our cities yet, but that is what we're after. And so there's this prayer and fasting, dependency on the Holy Spirit, and then there's this preaching of the gospel to make many disciples. Uh, Let's call that evangelism for disciple-making. And I want to be clear about that. The command that Jesus gave us wasn't to lead people to conversion only, but rather to make disciples. So it was, yes, evangelism, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they might hear it and they might receive it and repent and turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as the one who can make it possible for their sins to be forgiven and and be reconciled back to God the Father in relationship. But it doesn't end there. Paul doesn't just proclaim the gospel, but he makes disciples. He helps people become followers of Jesus. And so we want to we want to see both happening in our city. We want to uh, help our churches and our people collaborate together for the sake of disciple making. I just want you to imagine what if all the churches in your region said, "We're going to make sure every person in every church is fully equipped to be gospel fluent, to be able to share the gospel to people in in everyday life." towards every kind of situation, in such a way that every single person who is a Christian from every single church in our region is actively engaged and equipped to make disciples in everyday life, to proclaim the good news of Jesus and establish people in their faith to help them grow up into maturity in Christ. What if we said in our region, we are not going to be okay with any church or any individual who's a follower of Jesus not being effective at disciple-making? So we will devote ourselves to helping every church become fully equipped to be disciple-making churches who have disciple-making disciples in every single church in your context. What if we collaborated around that, which is a lot of what Saturate has been giving our time and energy to for many years, is creating the resources to make it possible that everybody can be equipped in your context. So that's the second one, prayer and disciple-making. Third, it says they return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. You'll see this pattern with Paul, is that he's not content to just proclaim the gospel and establish people in their faith, but he goes back, sometimes in person, later it's through letters, but he goes back to make sure that they are continuing in their faith, that they're strengthened, that they're they're not just baby Christians, but these are people who are mature and able to bring others to maturity. The, the thing that I'm concerned about greatly in the church these days is that, is that many of us are not mature. And even worse, many of us don't have healthy leaders around us to help us grow up into maturity. So I'm going to uh, just state the third one. This is where we get this concept of having healthy leaders. Think about it this way, that disciple-making is actually just spiritual parenting. That the, the, the act of discipleship and disciple-making is that we're seeing someone experience new birth, so there's your baby, begin to be given the milk of the Word so they grow up, moving from a toddler to an adolescent, ideally an adolescent to an adult, to the point at which that new spiritual adult can actually uh, form a new spiritual family. And we want them to be able to do it in such a way that they are healthy so that the, the, the people of faith that are growing up in that context are also growing up into health. Now, my concern, and I would imagine you share this with me, is that 
especially in the West, and I don't know where you're listening from, but especially in the West, we have an epidemic of unhealthy leaders. We have far too many leaders that are narcissists who are in themselves broken and therefore break others. We're seeing spiritual abuse, sexual abuse. We're seeing people's marriages fall apart. We're seeing lives being wrecked. I mean, it's it's of epic proportions right now. I mean, even recently, the news that came out about the SBC in such decline presently, so sad. And they're not alone. This is, we could point to every single denomination. I myself had, had my own journey a few years ago. Some of you have heard about it, where I, I hit a wall and I went to a very dark place. And were it not for the grace of God and others around me who really helped me get the help and the health I needed, I don't know where I'd be. And so I, I share this third one with a deep, deep conviction, and, and I, I hope you hear it, a ton of passion, that we have got to take this really seriously. This is more needed than ever before, that we would fight for the health of leaders, that we would encourage people to get healthy if they're not. And so we want to see a collaboration in cities where we say, we're not going to be alone, we're going to let people be alone, and we're not going to let people continue in unhealth. We're going to fight for the health of leaders. Luke continues, strengthening the souls of the disciples, he encouraged them to continue in the faith, telling them that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, this idea of the kingdom of God is important to clarify. When Paul says it, when Jesus says it, he's referring to the experiential nature of the rule and reign of God in your life and in a place. So whenever we hear the kingdom of God, it's not, hey, it's it's not just talking only about the future reality when all things will be made new, but it's the present reality whenever the, the, the kingdom of God breaks into a particular place. And this is going to have real smell and taste and touch and experiential aspects to it. I and mean, Jesus talks about this, that the kingdom of God was breaking in everywhere he was going when the, the, the blind would get sight or the, the, the lame would walk or the demons would be cast out or the, the naked would be clothed or the, the lonely would be befriended or the hungry would be fed. Or whenever there was an, an interaction of God's very real rule and reign into the brokenness of our world, bringing about a new experience of the taste of, of what God is actually like, this is what the kingdom of God is. That's why Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what Luke is saying here, and Paul is proclaiming, Paul is preaching it uh, as, he's, as he's strengthening the souls of these disciples. He's saying, you're going to suffer if we're going to experience the nature of the kingdom of God being brought to bear on the lives and places of which you have contact. Um, and so he's saying, if you're going to serve, if you're going to heal, if you're going to cast out, if you're going to include, if you're going to welcome, if you're going to feed, you're going to suffer. It's, it's going to come at a cost. He's preparing them for what it looks like to be servants of King Jesus, bringing the true nature of what God is like in tangible forms into the world. So this fourth element is serving the city. It's You might want to also call it doing kingdom good. That if we're going to see the gospel and the true nature of what God is like saturate a place, we're going to have to be the kind of people who display in tangible ways what Jesus is like and what Jesus has done. So I would encourage you to ask, where in our city, where in our neighborhood, where in the place that I live, work, learn, and play, does it not yet look like the rule and reign of Jesus is being experienced and expressed? 
And that's the place in which we say, Lord, would you empower me by your spirit to be a display of your kingdom rule and reign in this place? And we need to do it together, whether it's in Seattle, caring for the homeless, dealing with school reform that's needed, caring for the poor. There's a variety of things that we're doing here. I know in places like Charleston, there was a lot of racial reconciliation that has been happening. And there's now new work that's being done to mentor uh, younger people into the faith in their profession or particular practice. Every city, every area has different needs and therefore will find different expressions of the kingdom good in their place. But together, we've got to collaborate as one body to serve our cities and regions in a way that looks like what Jesus is like and what Jesus has done. And then he finishes in chapter 14 of Acts and verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And there you see once again, the ending coming to a place of prayer. It begins in prayer. It's saturated with prayer. It ends in prayer. But here we see them now appointing elders in every church. We see now new churches started, which is the fifth key element for gospel saturation, that we start new churches with new leaders to bring new expressions of the kingdom to a new place. Now, I want you just to pause and think about your context. I want you to think about where you live, work, learn, and play. I want you to think about the church that you're a part of, whether it's in your home or uh, whether you gather together as a church in in a particular space. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to stop and ask yourself, first of all, Do you have a passion and a vision for gospel saturation to happen where you live, your neighborhood, where you work, your workplace, where you learn if you're in school or your kids are in school, and where you play, whether that's on the golf course or you watching your kids' sporting events or heading out to the mountains to go hiking or skiing or snowboarding or wherever it is that you engage in kind of recreational life? Do you have a vision, a passion for gospel saturation in those spaces? And are you collaborating together with other believers, other Christians, other followers of Jesus, whether they're from the local gathering you're a part of or not? In fact, what if you could begin to envision working with whoever is following Jesus in your neighborhood to see gospel saturation happen in your neighborhood? Or you were willing to work with whoever was a follower of Jesus at your workplace to see the the real nature of what Jesus is like be displayed in your workplace? What if you're willing to to see your schools prayed for and people that love Jesus collaborating together to really love and serve the school in such a way that Jesus would be seen and known? And what if you were to do that in the places where you enjoy recreation and you just said, Lord, wherever I go, if there are others who know you there, will you help me to be unified, collaborating together, with them, praying together, seeking to make disciples together, learning to be healthier leaders together, serving in tangible ways those places that you sent us to together, and Lord willing, seeing new expressions of the church popping up all over the place until our entire region is absolutely filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what we're committed to serve you in. This is why we have a podcast. This is why we have resources that we create through our online subscription, saturatetheworld.com. This is why we put these things in place. And we put them in place so that you have access to both the vision of it, an opportunity to collaborate around 
with others who want to see it happen, and then the tools, training, and coaching, if you'd like it, to take next steps to make it uh, a reality where you live, work, learn, and play. So if we can be helpful to you, you would like to know more information or wonder if there's even people in your context that are thinking the same things, wanting to do the same things, please go visit saturatetheworld.com to find out more. Send us an email if you want it at um, hello at saturatetheworld.com or info at saturatetheworld.com. You can get connected to one of our leaders that can maybe help you take next steps. And if you haven't yet subscribed to saturatetheworld.com's resources, please subscribe. We've created so many uh, videos and PDFs and training pathways for you to step into to begin to live into this vision yourself. It's a subscription-based membership. It's about $16 a month. So if you've been, if you have Netflix, you're already willing to spend that kind of money on something that's purely entertainment. What if you could spend that kind of money to not only get yourself equipped and trained, but when people do subscribe to a subscription, we're able to also give another one away for free to those who can't afford it. So if you're one of those who can't afford it, please let us know. We would love to make it available to you for free. I want to let you know that you can sign up right now for a two-week membership trial by using the coupon code PODCAST2023. That's all lowercase letters and no spaces. This gives you free access for two weeks to all of our resources through our Saturate membership. So I want to encourage you to take a look, see what's there. And it's a two-week trial that we give to you for free just for listening in. So again, that's PODCAST2023, all lowercase letters, and no spaces. And I think one other thing I want to leave with is if you would love to be a partner with Saturate who supports our work through prayer or even through financial giving, please reach out to hello at saturatetheworld.com and let us know that you want to be a partner. I send out regular prayer updates through a text, usually once every week or two, letting people know what we're doing or where we're at serving so that you can be praying for us, but also so that you can stay informed and even come join us if we're near you at the time. So if you'd like to be a partner, send an email to hello at saturatetheworld.com. Let them know you'd love to be a prayer partner. And if you want to give, you can just go to saturatetheworld.com, click on give. Uh, We are completely dependent upon outside support to do this work. So if you would love to help us with that work, we would be so blessed by that. I want to thank you for the opportunity that I've had to share this vision with you. I hope it's stirred in your heart a desire to see this happen where you are, and I hope we can be of help. Thanks for being with us. May God bless you. May he fill you with his spirit. May he empower you for his work so that every man, woman, and child, where you live, work, learn, and play, might have repeated opportunities to meet Jesus through your life.